And that was the initial idea was to use technology married with people on the ground to do a mixture of human intelligence and sort of technical intelligence collection on the ground married with the ability to take um, action. I'm just being a little bit generic there because most of what yeah. we did was uh, what you like call code word access, like, you know, very classified work that we did for the U.S. government and, and our allies. And we did that very successfully. You know, I bootstrapped that business. I, I begged people to invest in me. I, I had no financial network, but that's why I take, when I look at founders now, I really understand how hard it is when you're someone who comes from a network where you don't have access to money. We definitely back the insiders from time to time, but our fund is really designed to find those unknown, under yeah. network, undervalued founders all across US. And, and I've had huge, you know, multi-billion dollar companies from that approach. I was that kind of guy who just didn't have access to money. I, I tried pitching, couldn't do it. I failed utterly at raising money, bootstrapped it by going back to Navy Federal Credit Union. They gave me an equity line of credit on my rental properties and I'd use credit cards and I'd bootstrap that business. Dear friends, it's Kurt Derridix and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I am so glad you found us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with my friend, Paige Craig, the founder and general partner at Outlander VC, which is launching its third early stage VC fund. Paige has one of the most incredible stories of any of my friends from growing up in very, very humble beginnings outside of Sacramento, California, to getting into West Point, then becoming a Marine, and then starting the Lincoln Group a private military company operating across the globe, Middle East, Africa, Southeast Asia, that he grew to over a thousand headcount. Page subsequently sold the Lincoln Group and transitioned to angel investing is when I met him in Los Angeles around 2008. And since then, he's had over 30 unicorns under his belt, including Postmates, Lyft, AngelList, Gusto, Wish, and dozens more. What Page and the team at Outlander are doing is finding diamonds in the rough. Founders that have what it takes to win, but don't traffic in the top schools, top cities, or social networks. And Paige's background all comes together to deliver returns that put him in the top 1% of tech investors. And I'm so excited to share this honest and inspired conversation with one of the most interesting people I know. So, on to today's show. Here's Paige. Paige Craig, buddy, it's so good to see you. It's been a minute. Indeed, dude, it's been it's been ages, but I feel like I've known you a lifetime. I know, I know. You came into my life, or maybe we came into each other's lives at, at really interesting intersections for both of us. I remember meeting you uh, December of 2008 at the Digital Family Reunion, which was an event that I produced, and uh, you were sort of the bell of the ball. Like everybody was so pumped that Paige Craig was coming into town. Nicole Jordan brought you to the party. And uh, I think you met a bunch of friends that night. That's the first time I met you. I have an incredible photo of the two of us. And we've uh, lived some life uh, together since then. And you've been one of those people that's really inspired me to uh, raise the bar and, and, and uh, you know, be a better human and be a better business person. And I, I'm so grateful to uh, call you a friend. So thank you for that, my man. Thank you, man. Yeah, that was an exciting time. I had just... Uh... Just come back probably from Iraq or Afghanistan. I was selling my private military company that I had started several years before. And, uh, you know, I was just, I was literally just jumping into the world of angel investing and, and venture capital. So it was, it was all new to me back then. Yeah. What, I mean, you have such an, an incredible story. I, I probably know a little bit more about it than most people since we spent, um, you know, quite a bit of time together. And, uh, um, you know, I want to I want to press rewind and get into some of that stuff, but um, just to bring catch the audience up. I mean, you've been a really pro prolific angel investor, and uh, I think some of your background in the military really helped you sort of ferret that you know be able to have a nose for that. I I guess in in, in when you're pitching LPs, you know, part of the LP pitch I think is is really being able to have an edge on sourcing deals. Is that fair to say? You know, I think for any venture fund, you want to have a unique strategy. Yeah. Uh, I think LPs also want to see that you have past performance and, yeah. and, and they need to trust you. Right. So it's like, they want to look at a fund manager, I think, and say, wow, this, 
this person or this team has a very unique strategy, a unique insight into the market, and they know how to source, select, win, yeah. and then help those companies liquidate and make the money down the road. And, but also it's got to be like, do they trust you? Right? They really have to understand who they're investing with. And ideally, you come to the table with a track record. And to your point, after selling my business, uh, before I started the venture fund, I just wrote checks out my own pocket for yeah. a little over four years. I did like 70 deals writing 50 to 250K checks. And I was, you know, first money into Wish, uh, did C rounds like Lyft, um, you know, many, many great companies around Silicon Valley, LA, and New York. And, and that really set the stage for building my first venture fund in 2015. And now I'm yeah. raising my third venture fund. Yeah. What, what are the size of the funds? What's, what's the size of this fund? So uh, when I was an angel, I deployed in total uh, almost $4 million. Fund yep. one, the institutional fund that we launched after that uh, was $28 million. Our second fund was about $80 million, And this latest fund will be $150 million. And we're out there, you know, out there talking to folks right now. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I'm uh, raising my first fund. It's a $140 million uh, open-ended fund. And we're doing private credit in the real estate space. So it's a... Uh, nice, man. Yeah. People need money yeah. these days. Say again? People need money. Yes. I, I mean, our, we have a really interesting niche. So, I mean, it's it's a completely different ball of wax than raising a closed-end VC fund. Um, but I, I can teach a, a class in fund formation now, and it's incredible uh, skill. And I'm, I'm very, very uh, grateful um, to be on this journey and, and to be able to draw inspiration from friends and mentors like you that have, uh, you know, gone gone before because there's there's a lot of similarities um you know so much of this stuff is chicken and egg i mean that makes a lot of sense that you had you had a really big success with lincoln group which I, i'd love to talk a little bit about to give context because it's such a fascinating uh incredible story and then and then you were writing checks that, that makes sense four million uh, i think i remember you telling me when you were skiing one time that you need to about you sort of say yeah you gotta have like 25 30 million bucks like net worth to be able to be able to like start writing those kind of checks without being you know too crazy aggressive and uh and developing your profile right yeah yeah of course i mean i meet some founders out there barely have you know probably a couple hundred k to their name and they're out there writing five, 10 K checks. And I really respect that. And also, yeah. you know, um, any, the funny thing is any amount of money deployed with conviction and assistance to a founder at the earliest stages can be incredibly helpful. And for you as an investor is an amazing learning experience. So I'm, I, I really applaud anyone, whether they're writing five K checks or hundred K checks as an angel. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, I remember you had wanted to invest in City Source, and uh, you were so helpful with us. And we had we had just taken some money from Jack Dangerman, the billionaire founder at Esri, and so I sort of respectfully declined. And you were so gracious about that. And I, uh, um, you know, we finally got that business sold after a fourteen year journey last year, which gave me the sort of little space to be able to quit a great job at Hunt Club and, and start something new. So, um, yeah, again, you know, Lots having been the success doesn't happen overnight, right? There, yeah. a lot of times people get caught up in the fantasy that these unicorns, and many are paper unicorns, but a lot of people believe these great businesses in tech somehow get started and exit in five years. And the reality is that most incredible value takes a decade or longer. Yeah, yeah. And in, in my case, like the check wasn't a huge check, but it was QSPS, so I didn't have to pay Uncle Sam. And uh I had made enough money along the way, you know, making great money, uh, sort of as a journeyman, go to market BD guy and learning how to invest my own capital and doing real estate deals and so forth. So it was a kind of a get rich slow kind of thing in my case. Yeah. Um, I think kind of rewinding to you, the, your story is fascinating. You grew up in, um, Sacramento. I think you grew up like dirt poor, right? Sacramento area. Yeah. That's right. Sort of, because, you know, the first, like, five years of my life, I lived out of the back of a car. Yeah. Uh, you know, my parents kind of drove around, really, my dad. We squatted in abandoned properties until finally my grandparents, uh, my grandfather, Paige Craig, who, incredible World War II vet uh, and Pearl Harbor vet, was, uh, and my grandma, Jean, who did 38 years in Marine Corps, they told my father that he'd better settle down and start and take me to school. 
And so we basically broke down in Sacramento. I remember the the night we were like sitting in the car, there's lightning and thunder, and we're like parked in front of this old abandoned Victorian home on the, the banks of the Sacramento River. And that became our home until fifth grade. And this thing would have scared the crap out of you. It had no electricity. It had no water. It had nothing. We spent years, I remember working with my dad, just fixing this up. And we were squatters. And I was somewhere where like, I'm like nine, 10. I remember somewhere in grade school, the actual owners show up to the house. And my dad convinces them to let us stay there. And his pitch was like, look, we're good people. We'll watch your property. And hey, maybe we're scraping by. Maybe we could buy this off you someday. Ultimately, yeah. it's like uh, CalPERS. I think it's CalPERS or the money. Oh, no, CalPERS. It's like the one of the CalPERS units, they are built on top of my old, my childhood home there. And then we, uh, my fifth grade, we we had this like bootstrapped art business. We used to do framing for like local artists in, in Sacramento. And I worked there. I worked in my dad's little business out of the house from the age of like six. By fifth grade, we bought this little crack house in Oak Park, California. And for people that don't know Sacramento, Oak Park was like, the ghetto. I mean, our first couple of weeks living there, there's a drive-by shooting. The house we buy is so bad. It'd been burnt by hobos. There were no floors. We camped outside in tents after buying this house and rebuilt the interior of the house. So mm. an in- interesting background, but my father really valued learning, competition. I played sports. I studied yeah. art. He got me into Sac State. Like he pushed me, got me into Sacramento State University at 13. I was studying Chinese. I volunteered on a political campaign for Lloyd Connolly. Yeah, I got yeah. one. Uh, I worked in the Capitol. He introduced me to Pete Wilson, and they got me recruited into West Point when I was 17, and that just changed my life. Yeah. That's the thing that I, uh, even just getting warm and fuzzy hearing you tell the story, it's uh, you. The thing that I love about you is I feel like you're the same person, you know, now as you were then i have i have other friends of mine that i love and respect like that too that have, have you know some pretty famous people that that uh are haven't changed and i just i just so respect that um or it's even even the success has made them better in a, in a way um and the thing that uh i i always uh appreciated about you was your curiosity <laughs> like you just really ask really you're interested you're not, you're not trying to be interesting. That's one of the things I always learned from Jack Dangerman. He always say, hey, be interested, not interesting. It's an interesting perspective, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and you lo- and your love for learning. I mean, I think you and I celebrate or have a similar commonality where we have a high uh, capacity for input. And um, and so I think that's probably a great segue into the the next phase. So you were, you were at West Point. Um, and you you did three years there, from my recollection, and then you uh, punched out and, and and enlisted in the Marines. Is that is that correct? Yeah, you know, I decided to take another untraditional path. I uh, and I and I love my classmates. I love West Point as an institution. I was not much of a rule follower, so I was there. You know, I, I did incredibly well, um, and, and I I went back and later supported the military. But I was not like this big army guy. I really suffered. <laughs> in the structure of West Point. And I had this incredible tactical officer and my tack was this Marine, uh, sorry, my, my tack was a great uh, Gulf War vet, but my Solik instructor was a great Marine. And he told me a lot about the Marine Corps culture, Marine Corps ethos, this like bottom up small unit philosophy. You know, for me, like I just didn't really care about whether I was an army officer or a Marine. I just wanted to be, I was very much like in the action. Like to your point, I love the learning, but even more than learning, I've always really enjoyed doing. <laughs> I'm the guy who just like, yeah, give me a tool, give me a book, give me a computer. You know, like I got, you know, convinced my dad to give me a computer when I was eight and started building my own video games. I like action. I like learn the fusion of learning and action. So, yes, I left him after my third year. Going into my first year, I left. I went to the Marine Corps, had an incredible career, uh, ended up going through Damn Neck, Virginia, graduated first in my class out of the intelligence school, got sent to Asia. And, and had a great career for, for many years. And then I moved from the Marine Corps over to the intelligence community. And, uh, and that kicked off a whole other, <laughs> whole other experience. Yeah. So you get out of the Marines. I think the story I remember you saying is you were in DC and you were uh, doing some real estate stuff and flipping houses. Is that, you're doing that for a minute. Is that right? Is that my memory? Well, that, that was just in parallel to my career is that I saw, when I joined the intelligence community, I was working out in Northern Virginia 
and I just saw this. The context is this is October 2000. Mm-hmm. And so one, I just bought a house myself and I looked around the market and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a finance. I wasn't a finance guy really back then by trade, but the interest rate was like sub 2% from Navy Federal Credit Union. Yeah. And I was yeah. looking at the real estate and I was like, wow, if you take, and this might be a little bit of a nuance, but I started mapping out DC and I had this feeling that DC was gentrifying because I'd go there and party and have fun at places yeah, like yeah. Black Hat, the 930 Club. And I saw this amazing architecture. And when I was shopping for my own home, I was looking at the price of rentals. I was looking at housing costs. And then I saw all these incredible homes that were at the edge of these neighborhoods. And my thought was, wow, I could I could probably buy these things pretty cheaply, fix them up and rent them out. Yeah, I did that as sort of another way to make money. It also interested me. So I developed my own methodology. I basically mapped out gentrification. And the way I did that is I took, have you ever gone hiking and use like a topographic map where you have those isometric kind of lines around what altitude you're at? I took that concept and built my own system of mapping out uh, price per square foot for rentals, bedrooms, you know, lease rates. I essentially mapped out DC and I found a couple of neighborhoods. And then and over the course of, three years, I bought six properties and just cash flowed them. And the funny thing is that sort of hobby, which was profitable, uh, turned into the asset that I used to start my real business years later. Yeah, I love that. I I love that. And then then you got an MBA uh, in parallel to all that too, right? Uh, Years years before that, I had the Marine Corps, the Navy, paid for my MBA. But that's one of the great benefits of being in the military is I fully utilized all my education benefits in in the Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Um, so, what was the moment that you decided to hop on a plane and go to the Middle East and and risk uh, your life to do something pretty wild that ended up having a pretty big impact? It was, um, I think, the exact, so in two thousand. So my entire time, both when I was in the Marine Corps. And uh, in the intelligence community, I was a big, big advocate and big builder. So I would build technology tools. For example, when I was in the Marine Corps, I received an award from the CNO, sort of like the COO of the Navy. And I received this award for building uh, an intelligence collection system in 1996 while on a ship. And I built a system that allowed us to go out and work across the unclassified internet to go to foreign countries through their through their uh, educational networks. And I built a 3D uh, projection system to show amphibious forces, like what the, the landing beaches would look like, all kinds of cool stuff. And I was always a technologist, but in two, you know, 2002, 2003, I was starting to work on this idea of essentially a privatized intelligence team married with a with an operations team that could go downrange and basically collect intelligence in areas that were difficult for the United States to operate in. Mm-hmm. And that was my initial idea was to use technology married with people on the ground to do a mixture of human intelligence and sort of technical intelligence collection on the ground married with the ability to take um, action. I'm just being a little bit generic there because- Yeah, of course. Most yeah, of what yeah. we did was uh, what you'd like call code word access, like, you know, very classified work that we did for the U.S. government and, and our allies. And we did that very successfully. You know, I bootstrapped that business. I, I begged people to invest in me. I, I had no financial network, but that's why I take, when I look at founders now, I really understand how hard it is when you're someone who comes from a network where you don't have access to yeah, money. Yeah, when you're an outsider, you're, yeah, you're not, you're not well to do. Yeah. And that's what we really, yeah. I mean, we definitely back the insiders from time to time, but our fund is really designed to find those unknown, yeah. under yeah. networked, undervalued founders all across the US. And, and I've had huge, you know, multi billion dollar companies from that approach. I, you know, I was that kind of guy who just didn't have access to money. I, I tried pitching, couldn't do it. I failed utterly at raising money, bootstrapped it by going back to Navy Federal Credit Union. They gave me an equity line of credit on my rental properties. And I'd use credit cards and I'd bootstrap that business. I flew to Jordan and I spent a couple of days trying to recruit the right person to take me across the Iraqi border 
We crossed the border at like three o'clock in the night. I was dressed as a CNN reporter and I went in uh, while the war is going on and just embedded myself in the middle of Iraq and over a 12 month period built this network of people from you know, you know, the very northern border with Turkey to Basra in the south, all the way west to Anna to the Iranian border. And I built this network of people and technology. And my pitch to the U.S. government and, and even private companies was, hey, if you need a piece of information, if you need something done outside the green zone, and the green zone was like the safe area where everyone lived, I was like, I've got this network. I can do anything. And I cast this wide net. I was like, what have you want done? You know, it, we got crazy stuff like the SEC of all places uh, hired us to find a safe building and secure it for their operations. The first cavalry division hired us to get rid of a ton of chemical storage things that they thought was a risk to them. The Marine Corps at, and, and DARPA were our first two customers. DARPA gave us a classified contract to get some equipment. The Marine Corps hired us to conduct a psychological warfare mission and and we're, we were like in the middle of combat supporting the marine corps uh and that's not what they hired us for but they hired us for a psyop mission but we just got attacked and had to deal with it but we did all this crazy stuff but within a year kind of like most founders i realized what the real opportunity was out there was one to collect a certain set of specialized intelligence which we, we became very good at and two was to conduct uh these very complex strategic communications and psychological warfare missions involving, I mean, video games, movies, print, news, media, and it was all targeted at foreign adversaries and, you know, sort of, you know, terrorist groups, but that really became our bread and butter. And it was a fascinating thing. I scaled that across Africa, you know, Afghanistan, Asia, South America. It was, it was a really fun business and, and ultimately, you know, it was very hard, but it was very rewarding. Yeah, you grew at what, 800 people? Uh, probably larger than that. I mean, we had a, there's a lot of teams. I didn't even know how many people we employed, but we were well north of a thousand folks across all three regions. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible, Paige. Um, so you, you found, when did you found the business or when did you sell it? So 2003, um, I think we actually for, officially formed it in the middle of 2003 and then finalized the sale in 2010. Oh, so I met you when you were still uh, actively involved then. I didn't realize that you were still. Uh, oh, yeah. That, I mean, that business yeah, is still. Yeah. So even when we sold it, it's still alive today. We were, yeah. you know, we, you know, one of the key things is when you can't raise money, you have to run a profitable business, right? Yeah. Amen. And we, we were, we were very profitable. Yeah. And sort of fast forward to now, you know, one of the things that I, I remember you telling me about, and I don't know how how vocal you are with this proprietary 38 point founder or framework that you've developed, but you know, you seem to, I mean, that's one of the things that I always found so fascinating about you is I always sent, had a sense that you were looking into me, like X-raying into me at a deeper level than other people. And that, and that was probably just fundamentally, you know, because of your training. I mean, you, you probably, I mean, just even in the short little bit that you uh, just shared, I, I mean, there was probably, uh, you know, a lot of life and death situations that you dealt with um, in that context, right? In the context of my old job? Um, yeah, the Lincoln. I mean, it was a, it was a very high-risk environment. Yeah, we, yeah. we um, you know, the, I wouldn't say that frames how I assess people. You know, if you ask me about the assessment side, because I definitely learned a ton from when you think about risk management and also just a perspective on life and, mm -hmm. and how to have purpose and how to have focus. I think mm -hmm. uh, when you realize how fragile everything is. Yeah. Also importantly, when you see, when you truly see human behavior, it's uh, it's the best and worst of life that will teach you about human behavior. And so I believe uh, the adversity uh, in, you know, in those countries uh, working for years and years and years outside the United States in, you know, the Middle East, in Africa, and embedded in, you know, embedded with people who are suffering the worst hardship and seeing the very best and also literally the very worst of mankind, you really get a firsthand education on what people are about. 
Yeah, hey man. I mean, I yeah, that, I think that's implicit into into the the uh, this X-ray ability that you have. You sort of have this spectrum that's very di- multi-dimensional in that context, and then you have this. That's right. But I also think the weird thing is my my early childhood, and I would wish this on anyone. I you know I have a son now and a daughter coming in three months, and I always debate would I want them to have the same life I did because I think it gave me amazing perspective and love for the world, but I also think my upbringing and, you know, the years of suffering and in, in sort of what I did professionally, it's not healthy for most people. And so I, yeah. I think at this stage of my life, I'm turning 50 next year. I really think it's something that I was very lucky to be able to go through these experiences and not have it mess up, mess me up. Yeah. Like somehow this really twisted, perverted life that I had as a kid, um, and then a very difficult career that I chose to lead people through, it just luck, you know, I took advantage of that luck to become an investor. I'd say, you know, you're asking about the, the, the founder framework. It's a 38 point founder framework. What it is, is a written account of how I analyze people. I do not share it. And, and the reason I don't share it, one is I, I would like our fund to be the best pre-seed fund in the world. And I choose not to share in my 20 years of lessons because I would like my team to be number one in the world. But second, because I do tell everyone that if you want to be a great investor, particularly at the early stage, the number one most deterministic thing in a startup success is its founders. That is the number one thing because those founders will build the team, set the strategy, make the course corrections necessary, and stick with the business to create the value yeah, need right. So now, as as a company gets later on, like you can analyze the product and the customers, and there's lots of different ways to become a great investor. But if you're someone like me coming in early stage, my specialty is to go out there and find a, a very rare person that has, and we we all those uh, thirty characteristics come into four domains: vision, intelligence, character, and execution. Uh-huh. We go out there and we find people that have those four domains, uh, you know, like the highest level of vision and tells its character execution, but also they're going through markets and certain business models that we are predicting will be huge returners over the next decade, but it really is about picking the right people. And so my mixture of training in the military, in the intelligence community, my practical experience picking people, one of the biggest things I did overseas is I built teams of you know, pretty exceptional, interesting folks. We were targeting a different type of person, but the fundamental concept is if you're going to go after certain types of people, you have to understand them. You have to understand why they perform or outperform in certain environments. And so that same discipline that I applied to the intelligence community, I applied it to the the angel investing and then the venture capital world. And that's what I've been doing for the last 14 years. I mean, a lot of the way I've also... Now learn from, you know, many amazing mentors, things I never thought of, like, you know, how you think about resource allocation in a fund, how you think about strategy. Uh, And there's many amazing parts, but the pillar, the very basic pillar of our business was analyze people and realize that you're picking an exceptional, just a really rare type of person. You like find that with our founder framework. Yeah. How, uh. You know, maybe using me as a guinea pig, um, and you know, we I, I've, I've grown a bunch since we 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 spent a lot of time together. So we'll take your your feedback with a grain of salt. If you're comfortable sharing, what, how how would you analyze me in that framework? What what would be the strengths and weaknesses? So we don't. Sh- so the problem is if we. The way we do it is like uh, and if we, in, a, how about, in a generic way. Could you kind of obfuscate it generically? It probably not. Yeah, you know, it's just we yeah. just never do. So we. Yeah. We use it internally, and, and I have a very strict rule that I enforce with you know my partners. You know, we have five investing partners. We have two incredible ops folks. You know, brilliant ladies who lead the business, and we have a very strict rule. We don't tell people how we vote, yeah, and we yeah. don't teach people the founder framework. And that means anyone. And so I don't break that rule either. And it's so back to my point. Like one, I don't want yeah. people to game the system. There's lots of smart people. You're not going to game the system. You can well. But, you know, founders are brilliant people. Even, you know, like people, there's so much information. They'll go out there and research and read and listen to your podcast. 
And and I get all these founders all the time who be like, Paige, I read this, I read that, yeah. I read yeah. this. Like, and I'll tell people highlights. Look, I, I've been very obvious. I want incredibly visionary, smart, high character, high execution founders. But the exact details of what we're looking for and how we measure it, I, I'm not giving that secret sauce away. I don't mm -hmm. want people to try to become something they're yeah. not. Well, that's fair. And even with the uh, you know dawn of AI, um, you know, sort of really accelerating. You know, I'm sure that be able to be able to do research on this kind of stuff is only going to get even uh, faster and better. So, fair enough. You have built an incredible team. Um, you introduced me to Blaine Davis a couple years back. Yeah, um, great guy. I just the guy. He's such a special guy. I just love that guy. Yeah. So great, great job on the team. Yeah, and Blaine, you know, yeah, I mean, brilliant hard worker, but also a lot of respect. You know, he just uh, wrapped up his five years of cancer free. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw that online. Crazy yeah. stare, and yeah, you know, it's it's interesting how much um, near death experiences will teach you about, you know, help you understand what's important in life. And he's, yeah. he's a great, great human. You know, he, Laura, Bailey, Blaine, uh, Lucas, Layla, uh, and Anna on the IR side. Like the whole team is just. Like really incredible people. And that's the best thing about being an early stage fund is, you know, I get to build this like special operations unit, this really small team of tier one silent professionals who just get stuff done and, and go out there and find the best founders in the world and, and help them out. So let's dig into that double click into Outlander VC. Um, yeah. Third fund, 150 million AUM on the, on this next one. Um uh, under 150, so you don't have to register it as an investment advisor. Is that right? No, we're an RIA now. We an IRA. We manage like half a billion in assets. We've uh, we've been a very high top desk. I mean, top one percent fund for the last decade um, in DPI and TVPI. So no, but we we transitioned to an RIA, RIA uh, this year. Wow, congrats! It's a big deal. A lot of uh, accountability. You're a fiduciary. That's uh, oh yeah. You no, know, every it's like all the emails, all the texts, yeah. all the you know. There's lots of rules, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people bitch and moan about regulation and all this stuff. But the reality is, you know, you, you look around at the the scams, and the reality is, like, if you're an investor, you have a fiduciary duty. Yeah, and you shouldn't bitch about the requirements that the government puts on us to make sure that we're looking out for our investors' best interests. Yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't love it, but like, who wakes up in the morning and says, "Man, I really, really want to renew my driver's license. I really just want to brush my teeth today." But like, there's basic stuff you got to do to be yeah. a responsible human. So no, it's it's yeah. not that. Bad. Yeah, even more so when you're uh, managing people's money. So and, and institutions, nonetheless, too. There's been a lot of bad actors, unfortunately. Back to so much crap the last few years. Yeah, you know Bernie Madoff. I mean, he sort of helped, uh, you know, uh, put you know set. Just, he was one of the guys behind Nasdaq. I mean, it's incredible. Um, what uh, what are you excited to share about in the context of Outlander that you're comfortable sharing? Let's talk about you know being the thesis. You know, if there's certain, you know, we've talked. You know, we know early stage. Maybe talk about check size. Anything else around that that can give the listener context? In in then um, and then some other questions I'm interested in are like, you know, things that you know maybe founders or the market takes for granted or might be naive about around the, some of the challenges you guys uh, have to deal with and, and the complexity, but maybe, maybe we focus on the, the bright and shiny bit first. Yeah. So a, a few things, I'll tell you a little bit about why we exist, why we think we're different. So our, our target audience are founders that are ideally unknown, under networked, you know, undervalued. I say that all the time because yeah we are generally not looking for a YC graduate. We are generally not looking for a Stanford guy or girl who, you know, has every blessing in the world and every connection in the world. And, and they're going to be great. They could be great founders. But what I'm really looking for is that exceptional but unknown founder. And that could be unknown because of geography, because of school, because of family, or just being heads down like Peter from Wish, you know, built, you know, almost a $30 billion company. I mean, had a bad IPO later, but, you know, as an early investor, built a huge business from nothing. He was in the heart of Silicon Valley. So was Noval from AngelList, you know, so, yeah. so was Josh Reeves from Gusto. And you can find exceptional people. I just stay away from hot deals. And the reason is like, one, 
I think too much money really corrupts founders early. And, and I think there's a great, there's great value created when there are restrictions on the money given to a founder yeah, early. Amen. But you need to have those restrictions. Second, yeah. as soon as a person or an idea, an app becomes obviously too good, like a clubhouse, and every investor is chasing that deal, my advice to most investors, for most strategies, is run from that. You do not want to chase hot deals. I made the mistake as an angel. I made a, a couple of mistakes a couple of times as a fun one. But it's something I've learned, which is go out there and find the unknown great things in life and invest in those. So we invest all across the United States. In the last 12 months, we've taken over 4,000 pitches, which sounds insane. But we do, you know, we really shifted when we saw COVID coming. We used to be very concentrated doing, you know, San Francisco, LA, New York, very common places to hunt for unicorns. We shifted our strategy to being very digital. And so we've spent a lot of the last four years focused on building a, you know, online community of tens of thousands of founders and angels, building a brand and communicating with founders in 30 cities across the US. And so we're really looking for founders who are anywhere in the US building in a handful of sectors. And we're pretty agnostic. It, there are things we don't invest in. We won't touch gaming, drugs, gambling, uh, content-heavy businesses, CPG, alternative proteins. And, and it's nothing against those. Well, some of those, we, we do, you know, I'm opposed to some of those models, but like content and gaming and other areas, CPG, food, they're just things that, one, we're not specialists in, or two, yeah. I don't look at them as tech companies that get the leverage because my job is to go out there, one, you know, our whole team, we find exceptional people building unique technology companies that can rapidly scale once we hit product market fit and give you know massive leverage through that technology. And yeah. so you investors out there doing, you know, uh, you know, businesses around shoe, they'll invest in shoe companies and protein businesses. And I respect those companies, but for me, they're just not things that I think are VC fundable. So yeah, we don't do that. And what really we really specialize in because of that founder framework and because we look at people all around the country is we like to invest when a founder has no revenue, quite often no product, no customers, and, and we write a first check, we'll write the first million dollars into a founder founding team, like pre everything, right? You just have to come to us as a great team with a great vision of where you want to go. And we will give founders their first million dollars. We will then follow on at the seed and at the series A, and we back up, you know, we back up our best founders as they scale. Yeah. Is there a ratio that you have uh, kind of landed on as far as, far as follow-on? So for the $150 million, yeah, so you know, it, it what, is, well, how much would be first money? How much would we follow on by percentage? It's roughly, it's a little bit over this, but it's roughly 50% goes into the first check. So like our next fund will be 50 to 55 pre-seat checks, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, seven fifty to almost $2 million first money into a company. Yep. And then 25% of the capital is reserved to lead or co-lead the seed, seed. And the remaining 25% is reserved to follow on into a handful of the very best Series A deals. Yeah. You were the one that told me about Unity Economics for the first time, CAC to LTV. I remember you came to my office probably 2010 in Westwood, and you're like, Curdy, like, what, you know, what's, your, what's the Unity Economics? I'm like, what? <laughs> I remember like, that. Yeah, and you came in, you know, we started, we kind of opened up the book, you know, the, I had Salesforce running and we were looking at, you know, the lead conversion and uh, you're like, you know what, we, we, we were able to get like a basic number and you're like, all right, let's, let's just track this over the next couple of quarters. And uh, I so appreciated that about you. Um, and in that context around the, the kind of businesses you like to focus on that, you know, essentially tech business, is that, is that, is the obvious one is gross margins. I mean, is there a minimum gross margin you're looking for? I know software a lot of times the 80%, but is there, how do you think about that? No, because, so even though I, I talked to you about CAC LTV, and I, I will talk to founders about that eventually, most people we meet, CAC LTV means nothing and neither does gross margin. Yeah. Because I'm generally investing in someone who is probably at idea stage 
Yeah, of and, course. And talking to customers and they're yeah. trying to figure out what opportunity or problem they're going to address. Or it's someone who has an MVP and maybe they have, you know, a few thousand, few tens of thousands of dollars of revenue. But really it's about finding out who is your ideal customer. Are you serving them well? Are you building a product, you know, that they absolutely need and will pay for? We're focused a lot more on first, like, hey, are you the right team? And then yeah. who is your customer? What's the problem? And at the end of the day, business and investing is pretty simple. If you get the people right, you're really trying to figure out what value am I creating in the world? Right. That's most like for most founders, you have to figure out like how am I creating value? And there's a lot of math and process and building sales teams and product that eventually comes into that. But a lot of mistakes they're made in the early days is founders lie to themselves about creating value, or they just get it wrong and they overestimate the value they're creating. Yeah. Sometimes they underestimate it and they don't price it right. But I spend a lot of time really helping founders think about what is it that you're doing for your customer? And it's sometimes a complex question because sometimes you you are on the right track. You you have the right idea for the world, but you've picked the wrong customer set to start with. Or yeah. you've picked the right customer, the right segment, your value props a little bit off. We just did a, a, a fireside chat yesterday with Blake Hall, uh, you know, combat veteran, two bronze stars, hunted ISIS down in, in Iraq, amazing guy, came back, you know, uh, I, I was his first investor. Kelly Perdue brought me the deal along with David Tish. And this guy's built a multi-billion dollar company running identity management. And, and he's like, he has a hundred me- million people using his identity service. And the U.S. government, it's like 16 states or 30 states, 16 federal agencies, 600 organizations, the biggest retailer in the world. And this guy started off with the value prop of trying to essentially be living social for the military. And what he found out through that process is that one of the biggest things he was doing well was verifying that someone was actually a veteran or yep. someone was actually law enforcement. And he pivoted the company. He made a, he took a while to understand it, it like a, the right amount of time to analyze the situation. And he went from being a platform for these great deals for military members to being an identity system. Right. And he mm-hmm. now, has built this killer business that's probably a hundred billion dollar company in the next decade. And, and he really paid attention to value creation. And we had many amazing chats and, you know, the other investors gave him great, great mentorship, but he was the founder who took control of his ship and steered it a little bit into where he really saw value. And that, yeah. so to answer your question, simply most of our discussions in the first year do not involve Pack LTBs or margins, you know, that yeah. actually happens once we start to get beyond seed stage and the series A. Yeah, yeah that's probably more for the follow on, right? Yeah. And yeah. I guess th- there, there's two things in that. One, I was just trying to understand, just as an investor speaking to another investor, like what is it that you like about the tech business that maybe I might not be appreciating there, like beyond the obvious things like gross margin and stuff like that. So, oh, what do I like about tech? I mean, what I like about tech is that fundamentally, as a, as a founder and as an investor, you get to back the founders who do this. With technology, you get to create agents, whether software or hardware, that do unique work and that do scalable work that humans cannot, right? Like when you're building business, you could be in the service industry and you can hire people to make video games or write comic books or build homes. Or as a tech founder, you can create software or hardware that does those same things. So you could be a software developer and you create a generative AI platform that spits out amazing comic books that are tailored to every children's unique needs. So they learn life lessons and are entertained. That is a far more scalable and high margin business than employing thousands of writers to create individual comic books for kids, right? Or you can be a founder who creates robots that build affordable homes for humanity and you start to spin out you know, $5,000 homes that actually bring home ownership to the entire world, but creates incredible value for your investors. So technology really gives you new capabilities that no human or you can't harness any natural resources or human or animal to do it. You create software and or hardware together to create new capabilities. Two, it's scalable because that technology can work 
you know, as long as it has inputs of energy and data, that technology works and that's why you get the high margin. So that is what's really special about technology is that it can scale quickly, meaning you can have an impact within your lifetime, right? And two, you can create new capabilities that advance life and business. Yeah, and if you're wrapped from kind of reoccurring revenue on top of it, then that's icing on that cake. You know, but the revenue part's only a measure. Like if you build true value, right? If you build incredible value for customers and you run your business well, you will get revenue. So it's like if I sat down and looked at my portfolio and said, hey, if I only cared about revenue and margin and revenue growth, you'd really miss who your best companies are because your winners in the first, you know, many years of a portfolio, it isn't the revenue. I mean, those are indicators, right? But it's, you know, it's one of the vital signs, but it's yeah. not critical in the early days. Now, long-term, if you're talking about, you know, you know, companies are going to IPO, public companies, you know, there's different arguments around, you know, whether you look at you know, net quarterly revenue, like what is the measure that matters? But in my world, my job is to find incredibly special people who can create incredible value and create profitable companies eventually that change the world. But things like the margins and annual revenue don't really have much impact until we get to kind of series B stage. Yeah. That must be so fun. Almost like a, a parent, uh, you know, watching the, the child grow and find a vocation and be activated when you can back a parent or back a founder. And, you know, in that story that you just kind of described where they, you know, the founder, it took them a minute to really understand what the value is. And then they sort of discover what the product fit, market fit is and lock it in and focus and scale that up. That must be like such a high to be able to like, you know, experience that. How, how does, is that fair to say? I'd say it can be, but I also, I also warn people, this is not a business where, especially early stage, yeah, you're generally very critical to the business's life in the early days. Yeah. But you will get very little recognition for it. And and this is probably why I really enjoy it. You know, I didn't need recognition. And I'm also like looking for, you know, other investors who do early stage. You need to do it, do this because you believe in the business, you believe in the founder, and you fundamentally enjoy being a great investor. You have to be more of a coach, right? You have to be okay being in the shadows because the reality is your founders should generally end up in the limelight. Your yeah. founders and their companies will be showcased. And you'll see a lot of investors want to stroke their egos. And, and you know, we, we, we market our great companies too, but we market it because we want to have great founders come to us to get that first yeah. check. But the reality is like, if you emotionally want to be congratulated and patted on the back, I mean, dude, I've got almost 20 unicorns under my belt. And I'll tell you, like, I have a great relationship with many of those founders but other founders I barely talk to these days, I mean, they are, I mean, and it's like, they are so focused and they're building incredible companies. And the reality is like, you play a very important but small part in the beginning of these businesses, yeah. but you do not get recognized. If you want the recognition, probably the best place to sit is to be that late stage VC who runs a billion dollar fund. You can spend, you know, $20 million a year on marketing and advertising and events you can write that series B, series C check and sit on the board and tell everyone how much of a genius you were when you funded that. And it's not bad. Like that's a, that's a world for certain types of people, but yeah, I love the early days, the hard days. Cause it really is like these early days are the best days when you don't know if it's going to work when you're like yeah. zero to one, but even more than the zero to one, it's like you find a founder with a vision, but they're like, they have no idea how to sell. They have no idea how to build a pipeline. They have no idea how to build a team. Like, but they have everything they need. They've got high character, high work ethic, incredible vision. And you just do a little mentorship. And then once you point them in the right direction and help put some guardrails around them, they do 99.9% .9 of the work. And it's a, it is a lot like having kids where it's like, look, if you want to be congratulated for how awesome your kid is, that's probably not a good parent. What yeah. you, should, yeah. you should have this intrinsic love for these kids, for these founders that you're helping, and you should really want the best in life for them and what they want to do. And I think that's the best attitude as an early stage investor. Yeah. Amen. So for the audience, if they have a founder that feels like they'd be a fit for Outlander or somebody hears, uh, they want to make a referral in, what's a good way for um, the audience to get in touch with you guys? 
they can go to our website. They can go to our LinkedIn. Uh, any one of us, we we are we practice this discipline. We read every email. We look at every LinkedIn. And like I said before, we took four thousand over four thousand pitches last year. We look at it all. And if you're not a fit, you know, read up about us. If you're too late, wrong sector, you know, you'll you'll get rejected. And I don't mean any insult by that. But we have a very narrow focus on early stage technology. But if you do fit, you'll you'll get invited to talk to a partner or go to one of our office hours to do a pitch session. And we'd love to hear from you. Go to our website, outlander.vc. Go to my LinkedIn or any one of our partners' LinkedIn and apply to us. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you guys are also welcome to shoot me a note. I'm happy to forward it to Paige. Paige, Craig, it's so good to see you, my friend. I love you like a brother. There's so many stories we didn't even get, get into, like the <laughs> amazing Tahoe ski accident where I had to toboggan you out and uh, so glad that you lived because you broke so many bones. <laughs> I don't know how I survived that one, man, but you were there. <laughs> um, can't wait to see you hopefully in New York soon. Have a wonderful rest of your summer and uh, stay awesome, my friend. Thank you, buddy. Have a good day, man. Thanks again to my friend Paige Craig for being our guest. I so appreciate his humility, honesty, and the game he's playing to even the playing field. I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram, also Kurt Derdix on LinkedIn. Until next time, Curdy D loves you. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.